The scripture for this morning comes from Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the midst, in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks, as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. Uh, Christmas Eve, we finished uh, officially our series called Redeeming the Holidays. Uh, And next week, we're actually starting our spring series 
uh, talking about the church and hospitality. This week, however, I think, is kind of an extension of redeeming the holidays. We are, like I said earlier, and Michael mentioned, uh, it's New Year's Eve. We're about to start 2018, New Year, New Me, right? Uh, is kind of the refrain that I hear. So we're looking at this Joshua 4 passage. Kind of obscure, kind of long. Uh, I'm sure many of you are like, why did Aaron just read 24 verses out of Joshua 4? Um, and here's why. This is, for whatever reason, not a passage that's read often, but actually is pretty profound. This, Joshua 3 and Joshua 4, is when the Israelites officially entered the promised land. So all of um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we see God's people set aside. We see them enter in relationship with God. We see uh, the law given to them. We see them in slavery. We see them taken out of slavery. And always there's this refrain to them. You're going to be given a land. And in Joshua 4 we see them enter into that land. Just as we are about to cross over into 2018, the Israelites were crossing into a new land for the first time ever that had been promised to them for centuries. That's why we're talking about this passage today. And I read um, an almost overwhelming story recently I want to share with you guys. Um, It's a story about two people who were faithful to their jobs, and to people, and to promises that they had made. One is a pediatrician. In the 80s, technology was not where it is today. Delivered a premature baby. Three pounds. Tiny little baby. Um, Because uh, the NICU was not where it is today and those types of things, the baby was given a 50% chance to live, and the pediatrician had to stay up constantly, through the night for an entire week trying to keep this baby alive. He did everything he could. Day in, night in, day out, nonstop. And he saved this baby's life. He was faithful to the promises, to the family, to his trade, and to this little baby. Because of his faithfulness, this baby was saved. See now, a bad car wreck. Semi-truck, T-bones an SUV, come along the scene, SUV's trapped underneath the semi, cars aflame, there's someone in there. Fire truck arrives, traffic is backed up, they realize someone's in there, they take the jaws of life out, fire retardant suit and everything, he gets in there, no matter the scenario, he was going to save whoever was in there. Faithful to his promise to serve and protect. He gets in there and he pulls the man out of the truck. He, he ushers him to safety. He gets him into the ambulance. And as the ambulance door shut, he looks in. And he realizes that the man he saved was his childhood pediatrician. And it was the man that stayed up tirelessly through the night and kept him alive as a premature baby. You see, because both of these men were faithful to their promises that they had made to one of the 
humanity, to their jobs, to families, they saved one another 30 years apart. Here's why I tell you this story. You are probably going through lists in your head for you, for your family, goals, resolutions that you want to make for 2018 and beyond. And this, there's nothing wrong with that. Andrea, was lit, my wife, was literally doing this last night for us. And this is not a wrong thing. But I wonder, I wonder how much stock we put in those promises and those goals and those resolutions for ourselves. I wonder what we think about those promises. I wonder if we think that they will, if we actually keep to them, if they'll sustain us. I wonder if we think that if we follow through with them, that they will actually satisfy us. I don't know about you. I don't think I've ever had a New Year's resolution that I actually followed through on uh, at the end of the year. I either drop it after a few months, forget about it, but typically I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I like willingly choose to not do it anymore. I think the temptation, however, though, and this kind of spot that we're in today, where Sunday's on a New Year's Eve, I think our temptation, as we think about these goals and resolutions, is to rely on ourselves, on our own abilities, And when we do that, we put ourselves in the wrong spot of the illustration from earlier, right? Because we think that we are the pediatrician, and we think that we are the fireman going in to save people, which is namely ourselves. But who are we really? We're, We're the baby. We're stuck in the SUV. I wonder what it would look for us, Hope Chapel, to focus on the promises of God at the start of the year. I wonder what it would look for us to rest in a faithful God who has promised us, promised us more than we could ever imagine rather than putting all of our time and energy at the turn of the year into our own resolutions and promises to ourselves. And again, it's not wrong to set goals. But don't lose sight of the God who has promised us things. A God who has promised to save us even in our own brokenness and sin, a God who has entered into a relationship with us, even when we rebel against Him and promised to never forsake or leave us, a God who has promised to create a family, a people, with God Himself at the head, a place for us to call home together, a God who has promised an identity for us as His chosen people set apart a new society for the sake of bringing the blessings of the gospel to the whole world. What would it look like for us to be refreshed and renewed in those promises at the start of this year? I do think there's a part of me and of you that wants to take matters into our own hands, though. We like to be in the burning SUV for some reason. We don't believe the promises of God at best. And at worst, we don't even think they matter for our everyday life. We think His promises are a foregone conclusion at times and we take them for granted. 
And we doubt that God would be faithful to His promises because we respond to His faithfulness with faithlessness. But that's not the end of the story. God meets us in that place of faithlessness and reminds us of His steadfastness, of His promises to us. And that's exactly what's happening here in Joshua 4. And the chapter before in Joshua 3, God brought the Israelites out of the desert where they'd been for 40 years after centuries of slavery and into the promised land. And the Israelites had been promised through Adam and Abraham that they would be a great nation, that God would bless them, give them a home and a land, make them a mighty nation. Finally follows through on that process, that promise to them. Brings them across the Jordan. And he proves to them that he's faithful to them. And he proves to us that he's faithful to us too. And so because of that, there's a couple ways we must respond to this promise. This faithful God that follows through on his promises for us. And they're this. One, we must respond obediently. Two, we must honor accordingly. And three, we must remember him generationally. So first, respond obediently. So this is a long chapter. If you have it open, I'm just going to kind of do some quick hits through. We've kind of already summarized what's going on here. Um, But in verses 2 to 3, we see God command Joshua. He says, take 12 men from all of your people um, and and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan. From every place where the, the priests had already walked over, bring them to you and lay them down where you're going to lodge tonight in the promised land. And then verse 4 and 5, we see Joshua immediately, without hesitation, turn and tell his people. And then a couple verses later, we see immediately them pick up the stones and they do exactly what he says. I swear, in all of Scripture, rarely do we, at least in the Old Testament, do we see God command, the leader do what he says, and then the people immediately respond and do what he says. It's, it's kind of incredible, as I was rereading through this chapter, how well they do all of these things so i've been wondering why do they obey so well in this passage and i think it's this first logically right if god had just delivered on a centuries old promise to the israelites and wanting them to cross into this land if he wanted it to go a certain way i think that they were at least somewhat more inclined to follow step for step what he was going to say this was a, a big moment for them And they responded rightly. But I think they were also obedient because he gave them something more than just a land. He gave them an identity with this land. Israelites were a landless, they were a a wandering people for centuries, whether they were in slavery or not. They didn't have a place to call their own. They were vagabonds. And I think with that comes a sense of insecurity at times. With it comes a sense of lack of direction in your life and and in who you are as a people. But when you have a home, you have an actual place to call your own, it changes the way you interact with anyone and with everything. And if you think about it, I learned this too as I was reading this passage. The word nation is used here in regard to Israel collectively, over all of them, for the first time ever 
in Joshua 3 and then again in Joshua 4.1 here. It says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. You know, when, it, when God told Abraham he was to make him a mighty nation, he didn't say, you are a mighty nation. He said, I am going to make you a mighty nation. But in Joshua 4.1, God calls them a nation, fulfilling even that promise that he made to them all the way back in Genesis 12 for the first time ever. And we know this too, because he tells them to pick up the 12 stones, which uh, are in this passage, as it tells us, they symbolize a different tribe of Israel. God called them to symbolically place them on the shore, showing a sign of permanence, placing a large stone on the ground, saying each of the tribes have a place here permanently. This was their home. I, um, Andre and I were driving back yesterday to Asheville, from Asheville here, we were hanging out with some friends, and, uh, we were talking about when we first moved here to Greensboro, we didn't have a house yet. We were trying to buy one, and, um, it wasn't working out. So we got a townhome in Wafco Mills, which is, like, right close to downtown, um, and it was furnished, because all of our stuff was in storage as we were waiting for a house, um, and it was this, you know, little duplex, that was uh, fully furnished. So none of our stuff was in there. We had just what we could fit into the car. And those times, we do look back on them fondly, but it was essentially for six weeks, we lived in a glorified hotel for six weeks over there in Wafco Mills. And I was just thinking to myself, I can't imagine if my whole life, I never had a place to call my own. If I was always in that spot of, What's next? Or am I going to know where to live? Or sorry, to lay my head tonight? Or that, that sense of transience that when we bought a house, we really put our roots down here in Greensboro. Things changed. We felt more like we could plug into Hope Chapel. We felt like we could love people better. We brought people to our house more. It changed the way that we interacted with everything here. Imagine an entire nation for centuries being in that place of transience and finally getting each one, each different family, each different tribe, getting to lay their stones down and say, this is mine. I'm here. This is my identity. I'm a nation. Powerful moment here. But I think, too, the last reason I think that they obeyed so well was they had the presence of God with them. Obedience comes naturally when someone gives you a great gift, right? Like giving of land. Or when you have the, your assurance of an identity with them. But also, I think more so, obedience comes naturally when the person in charge is present, right? Verse 5 says this, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. So just as the Israelites did not have a home or a land yet, God had not made a permanent dwelling among them. Um, his presence was signified uh, through the Ark of the Covenant. And the Israelites brought that with them throughout their travelings and their wanderings. So while they were crossing the Jordan, he instructed them to place the Ark in the middle of the Jordan. And that means that every single person, including the people carrying the stones and the priests, they walked by the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was in their very midst as they went across the Jordan into the Promised Land. 
this symbolic gesture is, is actually a huge deal. Because it was God reminding them just who was bringing them into the promised land. He was fulfilling his centuries-old promise to them. It was him who was in relationship with them. It was him, God himself, who was bringing them to the promised land. And he was right in their midst. What about us? When we think about obedience, what's at the heart of disobedience? It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith that the person we are called to obey actually doesn't have our best interest in mind. It's a a lack of faith that the one we are in relationship with won't actually follow through on what he has promised us. But imagine if the Israelites had broken faith in that moment. What if after centuries wandering the Middle East, being in slavery in Egypt, getting rescued, and then God is like, let me take you to the promised land, and let me, I'm just going to show you, a, ask you to do a couple things for me on your way in. And what if they were just like, nah, we're not going to do that. Even you, God, who gave us your presence and an identity with this land, we're going to break faith with you. What if they did that? And truthfully, they did things like that often. Uh, But they didn't in this moment. But we do it often too. So let me ask you this morning, as we are turning into a new year, what does it mean for you that God has given you a new identity in Him? Does that mean anything to you this morning? Does it change the way you live? So let's flip that actually. What do you put your identity in? What is that thing in your quiet moments alone that you think sets you aside from everyone else? We all have those things. That we think we are better than others because of this one thing. When you think of that thing, that's what you put your identity in. And unfortunately, that's not in Christ. It's causing you to be disobedient. Where can you repent this morning? And be renewed in your identity in Christ. What about his presence? Disobedience stems from a heart that forgets the Spirit of God lives in us. We don't pass by the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing his presence because we have the Spirit of God in us right now. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How does that change the way you view your own obedience? How does that change the way you view the faithfulness of God to follow through on His promises for you in your life? Because He is truly here, and He is present, and He is at work. And that brings us to our second point. We've seen that we have a God who's faithful to His promises, and we must respond obediently. Now we're going to see that we must honor Him accordingly. So in verse 14, it says, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him, just as they had feared Moses. And then likewise, verse 23, it says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan, as he did to the Red Sea, which he did so that all may pass over. And he did this so that you may know that the hand of God is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord forever. There's an interesting parallel between these two verses. The same word, that's used in verse 14 for fear in regards to Joshua is the same that's used in verse 24, fear, 
to, in regards to God. And the word fear, uh, as most of you know, it's not the same here as it is in our modern context. There's a nuance to fear. It definitely means, in the sense, on some level, to be afraid, right? Uh, but also, it means to revere or honor. Elsewhere, it's used in relation to honoring one's parents or honoring the commands of God. Reverence, perhaps, is a better word. So it might be odd to hear that the Israelites were to honor and revere Joshua just like they honored and revered God, right? But here's what's happening. Joshua, as it is mentioned here, was Moses' successor as leader over Israel. He was seen as God's spokesman, as God's ambassador on earth. And so how the Israelites treated the leader of Israel was how they treated and viewed God himself. So the way that they fear Joshua, they are actually affirming the way that they do revere and honor God himself. And this is where I see a a parallel between our first and second point. We obey God because he is the one worthy of our obedience. And we are called to honor him because he is the only one who is worthy of our honor. So why is he to be honored? Because he's faithful. The same God who faithfully brought the Israelites out of captivity by parting the Red Sea is the same God who brought the Israelites across the Jordan and into the Promised Land and is the same God who's faithful to you and is in relationship with you. A deeply personal God. I can honestly say that I struggle to honor God all the time. I've I've been spending some time this week wondering why that is. What it is inside me that causes me not to honor Him. And this is what I realized. I don't blatantly or purposefully dishonor God or refuse to revere Him. But it's through my apathy, my lack of putting Him first, looking at my own selfish desires and needs, that I realize that I fall way short of giving him the honor he deserves. And if you're anything like me, you may tend to be a tad selfish and self-serving at times, looking out only for yourselves. And I'd implore you this morning and myself, it's, it's hard to honor the one who deserves it when we can't even look outside our own needs and our own selves. I do think we lack a sense of reverence and honor for God because we believe that His laws and His commands and the law of Christ is not for our best. Um, all the crew staff are having winter conference right now and I saw uh, uh, Jeff Knapp retweet or something this picture but it was a Paul David Tripp uh, quote and he said uh, obedience is not or disobedience is not a law problem it's an awe problem you like that it rhymes but I think he gets something there right the law of Christ is not the issue it's our lack of honoring God and putting him in the place that he deserves and trusting that his will and his way is best for us. 
And the hard truth of this passage, and I think of, of the Christian life in general, is it's, it's never promised in Scripture that this is going to be easy to honor Him or to put Him first. Giving Him the place of reverence that He deserves in our everyday lives, that's not an easy thing. And far, far, far too often we allow our circumstances to change the way we view God. For instance, it's easy to honor God, perhaps, with your finances or with your life when you're financially stable. But what about when your bank account hits zero or you have thousands of dollars in debt? Or when your child is biting other kids at school and your principal is threatening to kick them out? What does it look like to honor in those moments? Here's what's true. He is worth that honor, whether we ascribe it to him or not. And here's why. Even when we don't honor and revere him appropriately, even when we don't give him that place, he still honors us with a relationship. He still cares and reveres us enough to enter into our mess, our brokenness, and love us. That's grace. Even when we let our circumstances dictate the way we view Him, it doesn't change the way that He loves and cares for us. Even when we are apathetic and couldn't care less about being faithful to Him, He is always faithful to us. That's why He is a God worth honoring. Because even when we don't do it, He still loves us. He's still faithful to us. And that brings us to our third point. So we say that uh, we must respond obediently, honor Him accordingly. Now we see we must remember Him generationally. This theme of remembrance is, is shown kind of throughout the passage. Um, but the first time it says in verse 6, as God is commanding Joshua, He says, uh, these stones are going to be a sign among you. So when your children say, what are these stones? What's their purpose? And God essentially tells them that they are going to be a memorial forever. That the God of Israel brought you out of Egypt and across the Jordan. Even when the waters of the Jordan cut you off from the promised land, God brought you through. And these, it's, it's repeated in verse 23. And these verses are a reminder to us that our faith is a generational one. They're meant for us to, to pass them down to our children and our children's children. The covenant family is one that is meant to grow both in number and in stature. And, and that takes all of us together. That's why we try to have our kids in as many things as possible, both in K through 5 and younger and middle school and high school. We want them in all parts of our ministry because our faith is a generational one. The covenant family is for all ages. So that when people come up to our children or when our children come up to us, why do we do this thing? Why do we go to Project Hope on Saturday? Why do we go to community group every Sunday night? You tell them because we are part of the family of God. But this idea of, of remembrance is not just to future generations. We're also to remember it to ourselves. Jerry Bridges has a, a much used quote. 
that you all have probably heard many times. It says, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I often wonder what that actually means at the core. But I think it has something to do with this idea of remembrance. At the heart of remembering what Jesus has done for me and for you and the world is reminding ourselves every single day that we have a God who is faithful to us, even in our faithlessness. To look back across our lives and our parents' lives and their parents and then the history of the world and see God at work in these different ways, whether they knew it or not. To see a God who's working in the midst of great brokenness and tragedy and see a God who is stemming the tide of evil and sin through death of His Son and the work of His people. I love um, that story of those two guys saving one another 30 years apart. It's, it's, it's almost fantastical or something that a country artist would write a song about. Um, but what I found about God reminding me of His faithfulness, actually... This is not in the big and the fantastic. Times I'm reminded that God is faithful is not in life-threatening circumstances or dire situations. Often it's in finding a community of friends. Often it's on a chill Tuesday night watching Stranger Things with my family. Often it's reading a book to my daughter, a phone call with a friend from far away. Often it's worshiping on a Sunday morning with the people of God. Often it's in those moments of prayer with my entire extended family or in public when my nephew wants to sing his prayer at breakfast. God's faithfulness to care for us and sustain us and to love us is all around us if we actually look for it. There's a Verse in here, verse 19. That's a throwaway almost. And I, this is why I love the Bible. I get, like, I get jacked up about this stuff. It's literally one that we would never read. I'm going to read it to you. It says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Um, it's easy to miss this verse, and here's why. The tenth day of the first month is the day that God commands the Israelites to celebrate Passover. God brought the Israelites into the promised land the exact day that they would all be celebrating the Lord passing over the Israelites' firstborn sons while the Egyptian firstborn sons died. It's the day to be celebrated. It is the moment... It is the Jesus story of the Old Testament. The Israelites were taken out of slavery because of this moment. And they celebrated it together. The Passover feast was the most important. And this is the day, the Passover, when God brought them into the promised land. And that's a beautiful, beautiful parallel moment. And yet, I see another parallel. Because on the tenth day of the first month, on the night that he was going to be betrayed, Jesus also came with the disciples and he came to the table. 
And he said, this is my body. This is my bread. It's going to be broken for you. This is the new Passover. All of you, in your sinfulness, in your brokenness, I have come to be the new Passover for you. I have come to be the sacrificial lamb that you could never be. I have come so that you may be saved. And on that tenth day of the first month, Jesus sat down with his disciples. And he instituted something new. And he instituted this table. And that is why we come here. And in doing so, in eating of his body and of his, of his blood, we are reminded of his faithfulness to us across the centuries. And every time we come, we can rest in his promises and be renewed in them. And for that, I am thankful. Will you stand with me?